right, everyone, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Kriogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. We're very excited to have with us today Dr. Benjamin Brown, who is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Women and Infants Hospital and at Warren Albert School of Medicine at Brown University, who is going to be talking today with us about progestin-containing contraception. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. All right. So for learning objectives for today, um, again, we're going to be talking primarily about progestin-containing contraceptions. So we're going to talk generally about progestin contraceptions. We're going to talk about sort of that biochemical structure of progestin contraception. We're going to talk about delivery of progestin-based contraceptive methods. And then finally, we'll delve into some special clinical topics, things that you should consider when you're prescribing a progestin-based therapy. So Dr. Brown, I guess let's start what are progestins? Yeah, so um, I like this class of medicines because they have like a bunch of different names uh, that all mean the same thing. So right, generally we're going to call them progestins, um, but you'll see progestogens, you'll see progestational agents, um, uh, and basically we're just talking about this class of medicines that all mimic the action of progesterone, uh, which is the endogenous hormone. When we're using progestin for contraception, we're looking at its role in the menstrual cycle, obviously. Um, and so you'll remember the graph that we all learned in medical school that mm -hmm. has that GnRH surge that causes your um, uh, pituitary to release your gonadotropins, your follicle-stimulating hormone, your luteinizing hormone. Um, and you'll know that the endogenous progesterone has an inhibitory effect on that LH uh, surge. That's right. Yeah. So once you get that uh, corpus luteum formed and it starts secreting progestin or progesterone, you um, you know you've had your ovulation, and so the feedback loop will be a negative feedback loop. So we're basically just harnessing that inhibitory feedback that's you know, there in your normal menstrual cycle uh, when we give exogenous progestins, right? So we're going to suppress uh, LH and hopefully suppress that LH surge at mid-cycle to prevent ovulation. So that's the key function that we're looking for when we use uh, systemic progestin contraception is that LH surge suppression. Um, but you're also going to see downstream effects too. So um, endometrial changes um, that are un uh, unfavorable to implantation mm -hmm. and then some cervical mucus thickening. And depending on what specific drug we're using and what delivery system we're using, you might see a slightly different balance of the role of all of those um, mechanisms in its contraceptive effect. Got it. And I guess, you know, thinking about that, when we talk about receptors, what exactly do you mean by you know, these receptors? Where are they? How do they work? Yeah, sure. So um, so these are steroid hormones, right? So they have an intracellular receptor, and there is a progesterone receptor, and that's the receptor that these drugs are all working with. Um, the expression of the receptor is actually under the control of both estrogen and progesterone. Um Different tissues work a little bit differently. Um, generally, um, estradiol uh, is going to upregulate expression uh, of, uh, of the progesterone receptor, and progesterone is actually going to downregulate it. And, uh, and in fact, so progestins downregulate both the estrogen and the progesterone receptor. So um, if you think about that, that's going to be a big part of why your progestin-only methods are going to have a key side effect of breakthrough bleeding because over time, your, that prolonged progestin exposure at the endometrial level is going to downregulate expression of both types of receptor, and so that's how your endometrium becomes desynchronous. It's not really listening to either estrogen or progesterone um, stimulation anymore. Got it. That's very interesting. What about kind of other classes of medicines? Are we going to talk about those today, or there's 
medicines that also act on progestin receptors or similarly things like ulipristol or mifepristone, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you've kind of hit on two of the big other progesterone receptor meds that we use. You know, mifepristone is an anti-progestin, right? Um, it's uh, used in medication abortion, management of um, early pregnancy failure, um, and, uh, and for induction of labor in the second trimester at times. Uh, we're not going to delve into that too much today. Just it is a you know different uh, class of medicine. It's working differently than the progestins, but um, but obviously really clinically relevant when we're thinking about the progestin receptor. Um, and likewise, ulipristol acetate, which is um, used for emergency contraception um, in the U.S. and actually globally is used um, uh, for management of fibroids and abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, it's a selective progesterone receptor modulator. So just the same way as you've got serums like raloxifene, tamoxifen. Um, uh, ulipristol is a selective progesterone receptor modulator. Again, not going to delve into that too much. We're going to stay focused. There's enough to talk about just in the progestins themselves. Um, uh, so I would start there for the moment. Certainly. So yeah, let's throw it all the way back now to, you know, we started talking a little bit about how these are steroid hormones. Occasionally on Creogs, you get test about things like biochemistry, um, things that I feel like, you know, were really medical school questions, but now are here in residency questions. What do we really need to know in terms of clinical application about this structure or biochemistry of progestins? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm a pretty big nerd, so I, I think it's kind of cool to know the kind of relationship between the progestins. Um, I think in terms of actual, like, what's valuable on the creogs, I think, yeah, there's a chance that you might get asked a question here or there about different types of progestins. So I think it's worth talking about from from that regard um, and if you happen to be a nerd too you might you might decide you want to delve into it more and there's lots of I mean there's full books just on progestins so you can you can go down this road if you want um, in terms of clinical application um, rarely I do think about the specific characteristics of one progestin versus another when I'm uh, helping troubleshoot a method with a patient or things like that. Um, but I think kind of heuristically, it's, it's very reasonable to think about the progestins as, a, as one category. Um, I think for the most part, you will not, uh, I think for the most part, you will make appropriate clinical management choices, even if you're mostly considering all of the progestins kind of in one, in one box. But yeah, I mean, to, so to, to delve in a little bit on the, on the biochem side, um, you know, so all of these uh, drugs are going to share a four-ring steroid skeleton, um, you know, so again, these are steroid hormones. They're going to look a little bit similar. If you just kind of take a quick glance at them, they're going to look a little bit similar to other steroid hormones, um, androgens, estrogens, and so on. And in that four-ring um, structure, it's really the side chains that are going to drive the um, both the progestational activity and the potency, uh, as well as any other kind of side effects or uh, alternate functionalities. I'll take a quick side note and just say that most of the drugs we're going to talk about are really only available in the U.S. as part of combined hormonal contraceptive pills. Um, so they're combined with estradiol as an oral pill. Uh, you know, so we're kind of talking about mostly progestin-only methods today, but for for the purposes of the kind of subclasses of progestins, most of these you're only going to really see the differences because someone has one birth control pill uh, or another. Kind of oldest or most original progestins are going to be the uh, what we call the pregnanes, uh, which are the progesterone derivatives. Um, they don't really get labeled with a generation. 
And uh, medroxyprogesterone acetate is going to be your prototype for that, right? It's basically equally potent to endogenous progesterone. Um, you'll see it in Depo-Provera. Um, you see it as pill that's just medroxyprogesterone acetate as a pill. Um, and that's going to be kind of your, your prototypical progesterone, your, your basic pregnant progesterone. And actually megastrol acetate, which you'll see with uh, a lot of times we use that for oncology patients, that sort of thing, also mm -hmm. similar, uh, also a similar medication. These guys have a half-life of about 24 hours, so they have one of the longer half-lives among the progestins, um, which can be nice, uh, obviously, when you're trying to maintain a, a steady state for a patient. Uh, so then we have the S-strains, uh, which are sometimes called the first-generation progestins. Uh, these ones came out around the 1950s. They started to be synthesized. Um, and these are actually derivatives of 19 nor testosterone. So they started with the androgen skeleton and then converted it into the um, uh, into the first-generation drugs. Um, these guys are going to be more potent than the pregnanes, um, and so that was kind of the clinical value of them is um, we got more um, progestational activity, more um, uh, kind of a stronger uh, activation of that progesterone receptor in comparison to endogenous progesterone. Um, and norethindrone is going to be the one that you'll see most frequently out of this group. Um, these guys do have a shorter half-life, or at least norethindrone does, at eight hours. Um, presumably, that's, that's part of why um, there tends to be more breakthrough bleeding, breakthrough ovulation on progesterone-only uh, pills. Um, that dosage is low enough and that half-life is short enough that if you get off, um, uh, off schedule with it, then you have uh, a risk that it's not going to be as efficacious. So then we get to the second generation progestins. These are the gonanes, which came out in the 1970s. The ones that you'll be familiar with will be norgestrel, levonorgestrel. Um, and this is where we start to get really high uh, potency. Um, these are you know, much more potent than any of the prior ones. Uh, they do tend to have more androgenic activity too. And we'll talk about that you know, in a little bit, but a um, little bit longer half-life. Um, and then we get to the third generation in the 1980s, and these guys are actually derivatives of levonorgestrel. And this is where it kind of starts to go off the rails a little bit because this is a really heterogeneous category. Um, norgestimate, gestadine, desogestrel, etonogestrel, and these drugs really don't have anything specific in common except that they all come from levonorgestrel. Um, so kind of a tough category, and it kind of gets to why just thinking of all the progestins together is sometimes easier than trying to break out by generation. And then finally, the fourth generation uh, that comes out in the 2000s is actually one that it's probably worthwhile knowing about with a little bit of specificity because um, this is where you get drospirinone, um, which is going to be your, um, it's actually more closely related to spironolactone um, in terms of its synthesis. And this is going to be important to know about because um, uh, it is an actual anti-androgen um, and also there's been some kind of media concerns about it with regard to risk of thrombosis, um, which we can kind of get to. But um, you'll probably be asked about drospirinone by patients at some point, um, and, um, and it may also be on test questions for that reason because it's kind of a hot-button medication at times. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get to those clinical topics on thrombosis and such, let's just touch briefly for our listeners on the delivery methods of these progestins, because just being a resident and trying to talk to patients, just even talking to them about the different methods there are, let alone the drugs within those methods, um, is a, can be a challenging thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so happily, there's a variety of options for how we actually deliver uh, progestin-containing contraception. Intrauterine devices are, are a first start. There's a number of progestin-containing IUDs on the market uh, in the U.S. now. Uh, they all have levonorgestrel in them. That's 
the progestin in all of the U.S. marketed IUDs at the moment. And, um, you know, so these are going to be really highly effective at preventing pregnancy. They will work for years at a time if the patient desires them to. Um, and really few systemic side effects because um, a lot of that uh, progestational activity is actually happening locally. Those endometrial and cervical effects are really, um, really key uh, for these methods. You've also got the implant, um, the contraceptive implant, um, which is an etinergestrel uh, implant, also one of those latter generation, high potency, higher androgenic progestins. Um, also highly effective. I mean, the most effective single method of birth control that we have, really. The big one for this delivery system is going to be that uh, irregular bleeding can be a real frustration for patients, um, which people may have experienced. Um, you know, if you've taken care of folks with uh, with the implant, you will definitely have had some folks who have it out because the bleeding really is very frustrating to yep, them. Absolutely, um, we've seen that. Um, and that's going to be related to that progesterone and estrogen receptor down regulation that we talked about at the start where um, the endometrium just kind of isn't listening to the signals it's getting from uh, centrally. So, And then obviously we have uh, the shot, right? We have uh, depomidroxyprogesterone acetate, you know, which is a an every three month shot. Um, highly effective um, actually uh, in the contraceptive choice project when they compared folks who were actually receiving the contraceptive shot every three months on time when they compared the pregnancy rate for those patients with the pregnancy rate for folks who were using the IUD or the implant, they were actually the same. Wow. So yeah, so the, so really the if, if uh, patients are able to be really adherent to the shot, it's highly effective. Um, it's really just that you have to come back every three months, and if you can't make it for some reason, then the efficacy starts to go, to go down. And um, likewise, uh, irregular bleeding tends to be an issue for, for folks on depo, mostly at the outset, right? Um, mm -hmm. Tends to get better over time. Uh, we alluded to it before. There's progesterone-only pills, right? Uh, Northendrone and Norgestrel uh, are available on the market right now. Um, so for patients who really want a pill form of their birth control, um, but maybe aren't a candidate for estrogen, that sort of thing, um, they can take one of those. Um, and then finally, wouldn't want to leave out. We, we talked about ulipristol, um, and then there's also levonorgestrel, um, as, uh, as postcoital contraception, uh, a 1.5 milligram one-time dose of levonorgestrel can be used um, for emergency contraception. Um, uh, so again, taking advantage of that high potency of, of that formulation um, to hopefully um, delay ovulation when someone's had unprotected intercourse. Very good. Thank you for that review. Going from there, you know, one of the things that I've talked with you about before and uh, always continues to surprise me as I read back through trying to refresh myself on who I can use certain contraceptive methods in, who I can't use methods in, or that there are definitely things to remember with the progestins, also particular side effects to remember with these progestins. Why don't we start off with just a talk on androgenicity? We've kind of talked a little bit about different progestins having more androgenicity or anti-androgenicity like with Josperinone. Um, what do we need to know about that in particular? Yeah, <clears throat> so that's a great question and it's going to be one that um, that I think intermittently I will have patients who really want to um, delve into that uh, when they're choosing a method. Basically all progestins will have some level of, uh, of cross-reactivity with the androgen receptors, um, some more than others. And then there will be some that are anti-androgenic. Uh, anti and then there will be some that are anti-androgenic. The main way that we see anti-androgenicity is going to be actually in our combined hormonal methods. Um, 
estrogen really upregulates sex hormone binding globulin, which is then going to bind testosterone, which is then going to make make there be less free testosterone available, and it's the free testosterone that's functional. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know if you're looking for a contraceptive method to um, have an anti-androgenic effect, you really probably want to be thinking about a combined hormonal contraceptive method because estrogen is really good at that specifically. Got it. That said, there will be some progestins that will competitively bind the um, androgen receptors, um, particularly um, some of the earlier generation ones. But I think where we tend to get more concerns clinically is for the more androgenic progestins. And so um, there will be some patients who um, are concerned about things like skin changes or hair loss, things that might potentially be related to something like levonorgestrel that may be a stronger pro-androgenic progestin. In general, if you look at like edenorgestrel or levonorgestrel, when they're given without estradiol, they are somewhat androgenic. Once you add in estradiol, the overall effect is anti-androgenic. Huh. So um, that's because that estrogen is so effective at raising that sex hormone binding globulin. Um, so if if you have a patient who's on a combined method, even if that combined method has one of those more androgenic progestins, I'm not super worried that you're going to see pro-androgenic side effects from it. Got it. That said, everybody's different, and you know people have a broad variety of experiences with different birth control methods, um, and so I sh- certainly would never say never. Um, those androgenic side effects or even potentially like changes in libido, things like that, libido being largely driven by androgens, um, at least on a biochemical level, um, are, are totally possible. And, um, and so for sure, if someone comes into my office and is concerned about those things, it's reasonable to think about, hey, are you on a more androgenic, less androgenic progestin? And would changing that potentially make a difference in your symptoms? Right. Okay. And then another thing that we think about with contraception a lot, at least in our population, is thrombosis. Thrombosis really takes estrogens off the table for us. And so what do we need to know about thrombosis for progestins? Because at least I think in some cases, progestins are contraindicated too. Yeah, so this is um, this is one of those areas that feels cut and dry sometimes and feels really confusing other times. Um, yeah. So first and foremost, um, you know, as you say, anything with estrogen in it is going to raise that thrombosis risk, both for venous and arterial clots, right? So, um, so you're absolutely right. If somebody has a high risk of, uh, of thrombosis, uh, estrogen is probably off the table for them for that reason. That said, I want to pop into the combined um, contraceptive uh, pills f- just for a second to say that's part of where that drospirinone question is going to come up for, for from patients and potentially on test questions um, because um, it was in, you know, drospirinone is available in combined uh, OCPs uh, in the U.S. There have been some concerns about increased thrombosis risk above and beyond other combined OCPs for those patients. Um, And so if you look at um, some of those later generation progestins, so desogestrel, gestadine, drospirinone, and cytoproterinone, they do have a slightly higher uh, risk of thrombosis, but the absolute risk remains really low. So to put it into real numbers, uh, a uh, non-combined OCP user, uh, the risk of thrombosis is one to five, per 10,000 woman years. Someone using a levonorgestrel uh, combined OCP, that risk is about seven uh, per, per 10,000 woman years. One of those latter generation progestins that I just mentioned, seven to 13 
per 10,000 woman years. So yes, it is a higher relative risk. That absolute risk remains very low. Always worthwhile to put into context uh, when we're talking about contraception. Another potential outcome is pregnancy, right? And in the in pregnancy, the risk of thrombosis is 20 to 30 yeah. per 10,000, and postpartum 40 to 65 per oh, 10,000 women years. Fair enough. So yeah, weighing the risks and benefits always. Yes, exactly. It's not there's not just one possible outcome being on this medicine or not. There's what happens if we don't provide this treatment uh, to the patient. So um, I would say about that in general, um, somebody who's a candidate for any combined OCP is probably a reasonable candidate for a combined OCP containing one of those progestins. Um, you know, because if they're not someone who's at that unacceptably high thrombosis risk, their absolute risk of thrombosis on one of these meds remains low. Got it. So that so that's kind of the, the for the latter generation progestins and some of the combined formulations. The other thing that I think you were alluding to is a little bit about, you know, are there some people for whom any progestin might actually raise their risk of of certain kinds of thrombus? Um and there and there are. So <clears throat> I think that one of the important distinctions to make is going to be this difference between patients who are at risk of arterial thrombus uh, and kind of endovascular disease versus folks who have some specific increased risk of more of a venous, uh, venous stasis and venous thrombus. Um, the folks who are at more of a venous risk are probably still often good candidates for any progestin method. Um, it's really the folks who have kind of endovascular risk factors that we're more concerned about um, kind of double checking to make sure they're a good progestin candidate. And so what I mean by that is if you think of folks with long-standing diabetes where they have retinopathy, nephropathy, um, folks with diabetes for 20 years duration or more, these are folks who are going to have higher risk of coronary artery disease, um, atherosclerosis. Progestins, when, they're, when you give an unopposed progestin, we do have good data that say that they shift the lipid profile to be kind of more of a quote-unquote male-type lipid profile. Um, lower HDL, higher LDL. What we don't have really clear data on is what that actually does to your actual thrombosis risk. But we have a plausible argument to say that if we get that more male-type cholesterol profile in somebody who already has those kind of atherosclerosis, endoarterial, endovascular risk factors, that might not be good. Um, and so um, if you have someone, so for example, if you go to the, um, the CDC's medical eligibility criteria for contraception, it's a great resource where you're going to see, um, you know, you can cross-reference someone's medical comorbidities with any of the major types of birth control and um, see whether they're uh, very low risk, um, you know, benefits greater than risks, risks greater than benefits, or contraindicated. So going to the uh, CDC, MEC, the medical eligibility criteria can be a great way to um, try to suss these things out on your own if you're um, trying to figure out if someone's medical condition makes them a good or bad candidate for a particular type of contraception. And the folks that you'll want to maybe particularly be thinking about that in are these folks who have longstanding diabetes, other coronary artery uh, disease equivalent risk factors. And so some of those folks, and I'll kind of highlight a couple of those categories from the MEC. We already talked about the diabetes, um, folks with diabetes for, um, for more than 20 years or folks with uh, microvascular complications. Uh, folks with um, 
severe hypertension uh, or hypertension complicated by vascular disease also fit into that category. Um, history of uh, stroke uh, potentially fits into that category. Um, multiple risk factors for atherosclerosis. Um, and for most of these folks, the really the method that's that is most uh, that that kind of crosses over that threshold to be kind of risks are greater than benefits uh, according to the MEC is actually going to be the shot, um, and that's because with any of the other progestin only methods, if you do start to notice these unfavorable unfavorable lipid changes or issues related to them, you can stop them. But with Depo, you can't stop it once it's on board. Um, and so that's that's where you'll see, if you look at the MEC for some of those folks, Depo will become a category three, meaning risks generally outweigh benefits. And that's really the, the rationale. Got it. Oh, that's very interesting. What other contraindications exist to progestin-only methods besides the, the vascular risk profile? Um, very few, happily. Obviously, anybody with uh, breast cancer, particularly a uh, hormone receptor positive breast cancer, but actually any breast cancer uh, history, whether it's current or, or prior, is a contraindication to really to hormonal contraception, unfortunately. Um, uh, that's kind of a, a deeper risk-benefit conversation to, to be kind of individualized. Uh, but in general, those patients aren't great candidates for hormonal contraception. Um, Severe liver disease like decompensated cirrhosis, uh, hepatic adenoma, malignant liver tumor, um, just related to hepatic processing of steroid hormones, those patients can be um, potentially not great candidates for progestins. Um, bariatric malabsorptive procedures are actually an interesting one um, for the progestin-only pill uh, because uh, they're malabsorptive, um, and that is such a, um, such a finicky oral medication, um, those patients aren't great candidates uh, for the pill. Hard, hard to give a, a comprehensive list. I would just say, you know, if you're ever in doubt or really if you ever have someone with a medical comorbidity and you just want to be sure, go to that CDC MEC. Um, you know, it's available as a PDF or it's available on your, you know, iPhone or Android as, as an app. And, uh, and you can double check and feel, feel confident that you're, you're doing something safe. Um, and of course, hopefully you have, you know, friendly neighborhood family planning specialists who can do a complex contraception consult for you if, uh, if, if things are getting really, uh, really intricate. Absolutely. We know we have one right here, Dr. Brown. The other place, Dr. Brown, where we use progestins commonly is in management of acute uterine bleeding. Do you mind talking a little bit about that and sort of the things to consider with different progestin methods for that indication? For sure. Often, in terms of stabilizing acute uterine bleeding, estrogen is going to be your best bet, right? Because it's going to upregulate those uh, progestin and estrogen receptors. It's going to synchronize the lining. You'll stabilize it, and you'll get really good immediate effect. But lots of patients aren't great candidates for estrogen, and so we often are then going to be end ending up giving a, a progestin. Um, you know, for those patients, um, you can expect that you might take a little bit longer to achieve improvement in their bleeding just because you're going to kind of destabilize a little bit as you get as you get started on the method. Um, uh, but then hopefully over time, as the whole lining becomes kind of less sensitive to both estrogen and progestin stimulation, it'll slough off and you'll decrease that bleeding and improve their, their bleeding profile. So you can do that with, with progestin pills. Um, you can do it with the shot. Um, uh, you can certainly do it with an IUD. Uh, I would say that the one method that we've talked about that's probably not a great treatment approach to anovulatory bleeding or dyssynchronous bleeding would be the implant, um, just because it really 
is unpredictable how folks are going to respond. And so many people tend to have irregular bleeding in the first few months on it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to that to try to suppress, uh, suppress AUB. You know, that said, we've been talking a lot about folks who are on progestin methods and then have breakthrough bleeding. And, um, that's kind of the flip side of the same, the same coin. And, uh, that gives me the chance to kind of, you know, point out another really great resource from CDC, which is the Selected Practice Recommendations. So CDC has a kind of companion document to the MEC, that is the SPR. The alphabet soup of the CDC. Yeah, exactly. We've got we've got bureaucratic acronyms left, right, and center. But but the SPR is really great. It actually will be in that same that same uh, smartphone app that you get for uh, for the MEC, and it will give you some evidence based suggestions on how to manage things like common side effects of contraception. Uh, and when you have folks for uh, who are on a progestin only method and who are having breakthrough bleeding, uh, you can go to SPR and they'll they'll give you some recommendations about managing that. And so those will include things like doing a short course of NSAIDs uh, for five to seven days, uh, whether that's uh, ibuprofen or naproxen to um, diminish endometrial inflammation a little bit and see if that can improve the breakthrough bleeding. Uh, if the patient's a candidate for estrogen, you could do a short course, 10 to 20 days of estrogen add-back therapy, whether that's putting them on a combined OCP or doing estrogen alone on top of the progestin that they're receiving to see if you can stabilize that lining, synchronize it, make it more responsive to the um, to the hormonal cycle. In terms of managing bleeding on the implant, man, are we working hard on that, but no one has really come out with a great, robust, uh, long-term solution for that quite yet. Um, people have been trying estrogen addback. They've tried tamoxifen. They've tried, um, I think maybe someone's tried mifepristone. It's, they've tried a bunch of different medicines that all could plausibly improve that. And while doing a course of OCPs on top of the implant seems to temporarily improve your bleeding, uh, once you come off of them, you go right back to that irregular pattern, unfortunately. Um, uh, and so the last line of resort is always, if you need to, you can use an alternate method if someone's really having bad side effects. Super. Thank you again, Dr. Brown, for joining us this evening. This has been a fabulous, really an excellent overview of progestin. Thanks so much. Um, I'm glad to get to be here and hopefully uh, people find it useful and get some extra points in the CREAGS because of it. All right, so once again, this is Nick, and this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy our podcast, go ahead and go on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online at www.creogsovercoffee.com where we've got some great resources or you can reach out to us. You can find us also on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, or you can support us on Patreon for some cool swag or a shout-out on the show www.patreon.com slash coffee. Have a suggestion for the show or picked up a mistake that we made in our previous podcast? Go ahead and send us an email at coffee at gmail.com. 